The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. All right, we, if you have a Bible, we're going to open to 1 Corinthians. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, they are in the back on the table, like I said. Um, and if you're not familiar with the Bible, um, you basically open up back cover in about 100 pages, and it's the book that's got a 1 and then Corinthians, and the big numbers are the chapters, the little numbers are the verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, we are in this series on um, the book of 1 Corinthians as a whole, and it's called Good News for Bad Christians because if you're not a Christian and you've been around Christians, you realize um, that we don't know what we're doing and that we're not great, uh, but Jesus is, and that because Jesus is great, he's got good news to help us grow in him. And now that we hit chapter 7, in chapter 7, we are hitting this whole chapter that talks about um, these, these categories of sex, gender, and relationships. It's these kind of the third rail of cultural discussion, right? Um, and we are talking about these things because it's the next chapter in the book of Corinthians. And um, we are approaching this from the perspective of we are not making this a political stump speech. And we're not making political comments about this at all. We're just looking at what does the Bible say about to be men and women who are trying to be faithful in following Jesus. And in God's goodness to us, he has given us this chapter to help us with that very question. And so we are going to read 1 Corinthians 7, 6 through 17. And then we are going to pray, ask for God's help, and look at this together. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 6 through 17. Paul has just talked about God's good design for sex and sexuality. And if you're interested in that, that's last week's sermon. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from the husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. But if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, and as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to what God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this section, it seems a bit um, thrown together. It feels a bit uh, multiple categories kind of hitting us from one side or the next. Uh, God, I pray that in the middle of that, you would sit with us and help us and help us to see that this is not a chapter that's intended to be... um, a battering ram, but it is an invitation to see that your grace and your peace engages every area of our lives and engages us right where we're at. So, Lord, we sit here as people in multiple situations with multiple things going on, and I pray that you would give us your peace by the Spirit to rest in Jesus and to follow him. 
his name we pray. Amen. There is a, there's a restaurant, there's a barbecue joint down in Alabama called Dreamland. It's in Tuscaloosa area, uh, Tuscaloosa area in Alabama. And the restaurant, uh, when you walk in, you walk in, and the first thing that you'll be greeted by is always serves is ribs and bread. What do we have to drink? <laughs> it's just kind of funny. Like they have zeroed in. They are like, minimalism is the big hot thing these days. They are ultra minimalist. They make ribs and bread, and the only invitation is what do you have to drink? And I feel like that's a bit of uh, stick with me. That's a bit of what's going on in this chapter, <laughs> and it's a bit of what the church is like. All of us come with broken, weary confused lives where we don't quite know what to do or how to follow Jesus. And when we come into church, we come into being a part of Jesus' family. The only invitation that we get is, all we serve is grace and mercy. What do you have to drink? That's what this passage is kind of getting us into, that there is a number of ways in which we come to Jesus, a number of ways in which Jesus finds us, a number of ways in which we come into the family of Jesus or explore Jesus, and our lives are crazy, right? None of us come with a storybook, fairy tale life right into Jesus' family, and then we just kind of pick up and say, yeah, we did a great job. Now let's go with Jesus. Everybody comes in with a broken, messed up life, uh, broken, messed up heart, broken, messed up mind. And yet we come in, and what we find in Jesus is this invitation to find grace and mercy. And the only thing that he wants to give us is, what do you have to drink? This section, as we're talking through this category of sexuality, sex, gender, relationships, it can feel very condemning, or it can feel very off-putting. I've not lived that way. I've, that's not my story. I've not come into Jesus, or I've not come into this with a... Uh, a picture of life that God would be happy with, right? If God really knew who I was, that's not the design that he has for me. Or now that I'm in Jesus, there's no way that I could enjoy God's design for sexuality, gender, relationships, and somehow feel like in a subtle kind of back of your mind way that I'm a second-class Christian, and what will God do with me? You see, that's why I love the book of 1 Corinthians. If you come into Jesus and you're thinking, I am at best second class, right? If I'm boarding a plane, I am way in the back of the boarding line to come into the family of Jesus because I didn't pay for first class or anything like that. The book of 1 Corinthians is just a wonderful invitation to understand what the gospel means for people like us. Because you will notice that Paul engages this entire category, first, first paragraph, and then all of these categories, and he's not slapping them over the head with, see, you should have done, here's what you should have been like. But actually, he comes into each one of these categories, and he says, you know what? God's made peace with you, and he wants you to help you understand that peace, and he wants to help you to walk in the grace that he's given you. You see, we're in the company of people with Corinthians, right? If you remember, just to kind of step back for anybody who's not familiar with the Corinthian church, is anybody familiar with uh, Jerry Springer show or the Jersey Shore, right? Those shows, or maybe uh, <clears throat> not going to name any names, but the Bachelorette show, you know, like those type of situations. That's the church in Corinth, Corinth right? They are like all jacked up. We are in a good company, right? We might as well break down a wall and invite the Corinthian church to sit down with us and join us at the table as we engage this book because they have all these issues coming up and going on. And God, in this chapter, all of these ways in which they have such desperate brokenness in their lives, 
God leans in. God sits down at the table. He sits down in the church. And do you want this God to lean in with his peace for your situation? Whatever your story is, whatever's going on, however you feel like, if we were to kind of like open up the casebook of your relationships, open up the casebook of your sexuality, open up the casebook of all those things, would you want God to lean in? And that's not to say you should hide, but that's to say God already knows and he's leaning in. And this chapter leans us into this passage where the book of 1 Corinthians starts out with this great command, this great invitation, verse 3, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It starts out, chapter 1, verse 3, it starts out to say grace and peace for people whose relational and sexual background, if it were to be opened up, they might want to pull back from God. He leans in and says, no, I want to give you grace and peace. In this chapter, it can feel a bit hodgepodge, right? Because in this chapter, the section that we're looking at, right, what is he talking about? He's talking about singles. He's talking about uh, people who are um, in marriages, kind of like getting divorced left and right. And he's talking about people who are, uh, one, one spouse is a Christian and one's not a Christian. And those can feel kind of like, <laughs> what do we do with all of this? And I'll tell you what, I kind of struggled to kind of find a center point for this passage all, all week. But I think that the invitation of this passage is that the God of peace wants to live right where we are in our lives, right with us. If you look at verse 15 here, the back end of verse 15, it says, God has called you to peace. And then verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. I think this kind of back end of the passage is this, that's the gravity of this section where it says, God wants to give us his peace wherever we are for whatever our situation is. So here's, if you're trying to think about what's the main point of what's going on in this passage, we kind of always say this because if you want to get the main point, this is the main point, and then you can check out if you want. I don't want you to, but if you, can't, if you can stick with me, main point of this passage, let's throw this up here if we can. The main point of this passage is strive for gospel peace wherever Jesus finds you. Wherever Jesus finds you, whatever's going on in your life, whatever's going on, whatever your background is, whatever relational, sexual, whatever the background is, strive for gospel peace. Strive to find it wherever Jesus finds you. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look through this passage, and we're just going to ask this simple question. What does gospel peace look like? If that's what this passage is talking about, God is leaning in. He's sitting at the table. He's coming to live in your life. What does it look like to find gospel peace wherever we are at? So the first thing that we're going to find is in verse 6 through 9, gospel peace, what does it look like? It values the marginalized. Gospel peace values the marginalized. I'm going to read this this for us again, and we're going to break it down. Now, as a concession, not as a command, this is Paul, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So first thing going on here, what's the big deal about singleness? Like why, why in a book like this, why, frankly, why in the Bible, why is Paul calling out being single. Why is he making a big deal of that? Because for us in American culture, um, we really don't think that much about singleness, right? Like you're, you're married or single, like it's not a big deal. Like, you know, it's, it, singleness doesn't have as much of um, maybe a taboo f- flavor to it. Like it's not a big deal if you're not married. But you have to think back on the culture at the time. The culture at the time would have viewed if you were not married, 
um, you were disgracing the family honor because you were refusing to, or there was something wrong with you, or you were broken. Those are kind of the perspectives of how they viewed singleness at the time, right? You, you were not allowed to be single, right? It was important, remember, it was important to get married so that you could advance the, the family line. You could advance the family line through having kids, and if you couldn't get married, that means that you were somehow a disgrace and a broken, squeaky wheel in the family that was just a problem, right? Actually, in fact, um, Saint, uh, not St. Augustus, because he wasn't a saint, although there is a St. Augustus, Augustus the emperor, emperor of Rome at the time, um, he put a fine on widows who, weren't getting, who didn't get remarried within two years of their spouse's death, right? So within two years of their spouse's death, they would get a fine if they weren't getting remarried. So that, that, I'm not just kind of like making this up like, no, like we kind of think that they were like they had a problem with singleness. No, they actually had it in their, encoded in their law, right? And you can kind of pick this up like in more like traditional cultures where there's a, like the pressure of like, why aren't you getting married? Where's the girlfriend? Where's the boyfriend? Where's my grandkids? You know, that sort of thing. It was encoded in their law back then. And then in contrast to that, here comes Paul. And what does he say? I wish that all were as myself am. Right? Single. Here is Paul coming in to the marginalized of the culture. Right? It was a taboo thing to be single. And he says, you know what? It's a valuable form of life. It's a valuable expression of godliness. It's a valuable expression of the Christian life to be single. Like that is okay. And it's valued by God. Actually, he's going to go on in the rest of the chapter to talk about how the singleness is wrapped up in this incredible picture of how God is saving the world, right? Remember, the son of God was single. Right? He values that what would otherwise have been the marginalized. And just as a little textual thing, right? I know some of us kind of geek out on the words here, right? Uh, verse 8, to the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain as I am, single, remain single as I am. The reality is that we think of the Apostle Paul and we think that, oh, he was single his whole life. The reality is the Apostle Paul was a widow. There's actually a good amount of evidence that the word that he was using there, there wasn't a male word for widow at the time. But he keeps using that word through this chapter to describe himself and those who've lost their spouses, not to mention the fact that he was a Pharisee and at the, before he became a Christ, and no Pharisee was ever single. They were always married. Pharisees always had a wife. And then he goes on to talk about later on in the book, why couldn't I take along a believing spouse like the Apostle Peter, right? Indicating that he would have had a spouse at one point or another. So here's, here's Paul. Like, does that just kind of like flip your brain around that, like, here's Paul who would have known what it was like to have a spouse and a spouse who died, and then what was it like to live a life, to figure out your life, put your life back together after your spouse had passed away or been removed from the picture. So Paul is not coming at us as, like, this pristine background, right? But he says, the Spirit has given the gift of celibacy and the gift of God for the advance of mission through singleness. I just want to remind us that this, ver this word here, right here we have verse 7, but each his own gift from God. Again, we keep saying this, but I just want to keep drawing our attention to this. The, that is a grace gift word. That's a Greek word for grace gift or a spirit gift. So the spirit is giving the gift of singleness here to these folks, to some of you, for the advance of Jesus' mission. Right? It is a spirit. It is, the spirit is giving you something in your life in Jesus, that is valuable. He values what the culture would otherwise marginalize, what the culture would otherwise just kind of push to the side. The Spirit values that, and he wants to use it, right? Here's our friend, um, Hauerwas. Right? I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I mean, you guys with these French names. Can we throw this up there? Stanley Hauerwas. I mean, French names? Like, how would I say? 
Hirawas, Hirawas, whatever, right? Stanley Hirawas, right? Here we're going to all figure this out. Okay, the early church's legitimization of, the sing- of singleness as a form of life. <laughs> all right, all right, everybody pull back together. Pull back. Sorry. Right, sorry. Hey, the early church's legitimization of singleness as a form of life symbolized the necessity of the church to grow through witness and conversion, right? If you think that the, the cultural encoding, the cultural value, the cultural ideal was you are married, you have kids, that produces the family line. And then here's Jesus coming in and saying, I value the marginalized to advance my name. How is his name being advanced? Not through kids. Witness and conversion, right? That is the value that singleness offers to the Christian life, that it says, my hope and my future are valued by Jesus and established in the conversion and witness of the church, not through somebody, another little child, human, human person born with my last name on the birth certificate. Right? God values these marginalized by their culture. God takes all types of people. Let's just kind of back this out just a little bit. God takes all types of people and says, I want to live there. What's your background? Is it three or four marriages deep? Is it long string of sexual trouble? Is it a long string of broken relational drama? Is it a long string of, actually, maybe there was purity, and you're just wondering, what is God doing with my life? We could kind of pick up, and we just pick up strands. Everybody's different life. Each one marginalized in one way or the other. And God says, I want to live there. Right? Don't miss that. Each one, his own gift. From who? Right? God. I can't give you a gift better than what God can give you. And what God gives you is what? The Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who was around before the creation of the universe. And he comes in and says, you're a value in such a way where I want to live with you. And I want to kind of come in here and do some demolition work and make something else new and renewed for Jesus and his mission in your life. Even knowing the story that's led up to this moment, he values you and he wants you. There are no second-class Christians, right? Single, married, whatever the story is, there is no second-class Christian. God wants you. This is why as a church, we, we have tried to pick up categories for prayer and throw them into our Sunday mornings to pray. Not just for churches, but for compassion categories, for the marginalized who would otherwise be looked down on or disregarded. And those categories have included things like the refugees in our city and our neighborhood, those in the addiction world struggling with addiction, those who are homeless. But the one often that is most, the closest to my heart is single moms and dads. Often blown over, frustrated in the grocery line, that there's so much chaos going on as they're trying to get their groceries paid for. Kind of um, tolerated, but pushed to the side. Never enabled and afforded the opportunity to be able to have their own voice, to make their own decisions. Right? They're easily blown past, easily, easily marginalized, deeply valued by Jesus. You see, Jesus sees the marginalized in this room however you feel marginalized. Maybe you would look at your own story and say, God could never use me. God would never want me. If there's anything this paragraph tells you, God sees the marginalized in our culture, and he leans in, except for the military, right? Sorry, I'm joking. My family's military. Chill out, chill out, chill out. 
God leans into the marginalized. Are you, do you feel like you are the ones that God could never use? What if we put on our redemptive imagination hat, sat down in our missional communities, looked across at each other and asked, I want to commit to what God values in you and is gifting you for his mission. Let's talk. I want to get to understand your life. How can we explore what God is here to do together? You see, this is the gospel piece that says, I don't have to become something for God to use me. I don't have to get a track record together for God to be able to use me. I don't have to somehow put a resume together for God to use me. God leans into the people who are marginalized and says, I'm here. I've gifted you already. Let's get to work. So, in our missional communities, let's lean in to understand what God's doing in each other, to understand how we can help each other find peace in Jesus and then grow in Jesus together. Is that, is that, is that connecting for us here? Is that, is that connecting this whole idea of strive for gospel peace wherever Jesus finds you? Because if Jesus finds you wherever you're at, he wants to use you and is, in use, is intended to give you his spirit for his mission. Right. Okay. We're going to pick up here in verse 10, because not only does gospel peace value the marginalized, gospel peace strengthens the weak. Verses 10 through 11, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should not, she should remain unmarried, or else reconcile to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So here's what's going on in that passage, is kind of come across as like, what's going on here? Um, just have to step back and remember the presenting question at the beginning of the chapter. So if you go up to read verse chapter, uh, verse seven, chapter one, was there was this teaching going on that sex was bad, dirty, dirty, and gross, and that you shouldn't do it. And that way, if you're married, you should get divorced so that you don't have to deal with that anymore, and that you move on with your life as now divorced Christians. And Paul is taking a sucker punch at that and saying, no, God has designed sex and sexuality to be good. And he's intended it to be good for marriage. Now, here's how you live that out. You remain faithful to each other and the covenant of marriage until death do you part. Now, in that, there are a few caveats in the Bible on the teaching of, of marriage and divorce. Because the Bible wouldn't. Jesus, Jesus would say this actually in Matthew 5 and then later on in the book of Matthew. And then Paul says it here later on. That in the cases of adultery, abuse, or abandonment, there is the provision for you to be able to dissolve a marriage and get remarried in Jesus, and that is okay. At the background of this, though, is the Hellenistic thinking that marriage is nasty and gross and should only be used for having kids as a toleration of sexuality. And Paul is saying that, that divorce should not be commonplace among the church. That's what he's saying. It shouldn't be a regular thing. Now, I will just say this, that there are many times where I have been in situations with others that I have counseled them, you need to be getting divorced from this person because they're abusing you, they've abandoned you, or there's been adultery. So this is not to say this is a lockdown hard rule to batter us over the head, but it's an invitation to lean into being strengthened by Jesus because in the background of this, did you guys pick up on this here? Verse 10, to the married I give this charge. And then Paul has this, it had parentheses in my Bible where it says, not I, but the Lord. Do you guys see that in the passage? Not I, but the Lord. This is one of those moments where it's kind of like a little bit of like a spring that pokes through the ground that gives, there's a deeper, there's deeper things going on here. And the, the water under the ground here is the Sermon on the Mount. 
Because what Paul was referring to is Matthew 5, where Jesus gives a command about divorce and remarriage. And then actually, there's, there's, a, there's a number of ways in which this verse, these, this chapter in particular, connects to the Sermon on the Mount. But I, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, <laughs> he says what? In chapter 5, ver, verse 31, and also, it is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Right? This is a culture that favored men over women, and all you had to do, she burned the toast, out. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual morality, again, pick up on that provision, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What, what Paul is looking at here is he is looking back to this teaching of Jesus and establishing the authority of how the Christian life should look out. This is what the kingdom life, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus and be a part of his family. And he looks back at that, and he's looking at this church in Corinth, and he says, these people are tired and weary, right? Can you imagine, right, if you had a teaching sweep through the church that said, you know what, that spouse of yours that you're just tired of dealing with, there is an ejector seat, (laughs) and you can just get out of this sucker, boom, for Jesus, I'm out of here. I am so tired of this. That's what I think that's what's going on in Corinth. They were just kind of like, I am so tired of dealing with this dude, right? Or whatever this girl has to say, whenever she sits down at the dinner table, I just, like, my ears burn up, right? And they are, they are weary in their marriages. They are weary in their life, and they're trying to find an ejector seat. And then what Paul says, he says, don't give up, right? <laughs> I think that's really what he's kind of getting after, right? To the married, I give this charge, right? Who do you give a charge to? Somebody who needs a little bit of some help, right? He's a little bit tired. Right? I give this charge. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't let it go. Right? And he points back to the Sermon on the Mount. And imagine for the Sermon on the Mount here, right, it talks about the divorce and remarriage and all that stuff. And then what does it talk about right after the, uh, the section on divorce in the Sermon on the Mount? Right? Let your yes be your yes and commit to your yes. Right? Re- retaliation. Don't get back at somebody who's stomped all over you. Right? Love your enemies. Maybe for those who've been married for a long time, those verses seem a little bit more pertinent to marriage. When you're in your newlywed phase, I'll never think of my spouse as my enemy. I'll never have to kind of retaliate against my spouse. Bro, I'm just telling you, you'd be married or in a relationship for a long time, you're going to have to put these verses into effect with the person that you pay your bills with, right? But the point is not to badger people with it, but to look back at the command because the command is filled with the grace of Jesus, right? The command, this is the general idea about the Bible, right? When God gives a command, it is from a gracious God who's filled with grace to help us obey him. So when he tells us, love your enemy as yourself, right? Don't slander those around you. Be faithful to your spouse. That command is filled with the grace of God. Like an egg that comes out of your carton, crack it open, and right inside is the grace of God to obey it and put it into practice, right? The grace of God imbues his commands to help us obey him, right? So when Paul is thinking, okay, how do I help these people who are weary in their marriages and just need to find a little bit of some peace? He says, you know what? I know, who, I know somebody who knows what it's like to be married to somebody that they're struggling to keep, keep faithful with. I know somebody who knows what it's like to be faithful to people and friends that are stabbed you in the back. I know what it's like to, I, I know somebody that knows what it's like to be gracious and patient with people that are just ridiculous. And that person's name is Jesus. And so he goes back to Jesus and he says, this is how Jesus thinks about you and wants you to help, help you to grow and, and obey him. 
And so what, he, what he's thinking is people who are weak need to be strengthened, right? They're strengthening for the weak because Jesus is present with you. And Jesus knows what it's like. And he gives you direction on what to do. Right? So if you're looking at these verses and you're kind of like, how does this connect to my life? What are the areas where you are growing weak? Where are you just kind of like, I am ready to tap out? If there was, a, if there was some sort of Bible teacher that came along and gave me a, an ejector seat right out of this so I could just get my way, boom, out. What are those areas? And then how do you go to the Bible to find commands that give you the grace to be strengthened in following Jesus. Is that, is that connected? Are we, are we connected, tracking here with what I'm saying? How do you find those commands? Read the Sermon on the Mount. I think the Sermon on the Mount is, is basically, so Matthew 5 through 7, that is like the thing that you need to know for your Christian life. Like what are the few things you need to know of your Christian life? You need to know the Ten Commandments. You need to know the Sermon on the Mount. You need to know uh, the end of the book of Matthew with the, where Jesus dies for our sins. Sermon on the Mount, top five. Got to know it. Because the Sermon on the Mount speaks to all the areas of life where we would feel weakness. And Jesus comes in and says, I love you. I want you. And I'm speaking to what you need. And often that requires that we exercise faith in the midst of weakness. Often, we, so often sometimes a Christian life gets reduced to this. Jesus has said it. I know Jesus is good. I'm going to do it because he says it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy as yourself. Pray for those who persecute you. Persistent in patience, right? We're not talking about like crazy commands, right? These are things that speak to everyday life where we would feel weakness, where we would find ourselves weary. Jesus says, I see that. I've lived there. And my commands speak to this. So where are you weak? We're going to just ask this question. Where are you weak? Where do you need Jesus to find you and to give you peace? Because that, what that means is that those areas where you're weak, Jesus lives there too. That's what this chapter is all about, right? Jesus lives where you're at, and he's helping you. So gospel peace values the marginalized. Gospel's peace strengthens the weak. And then we're going to finish up here. Gospel peace envisions the confused. We're going to read through this, and I want you to not just read the verses with me, but imagine the stories behind these verses. Imagine the people. Imagine the, the people who would be living these types of verses out, okay? Verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with them, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and, she, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. All right? So you've got a, mar a marriage where one spouse is a Christian and one's not. Right? And just to back up, back up and speak to this, remember we've been talking about the way in which God values men and women equally. You'll notice that this is spoken equally to men and women. Right? Wife, husband, spouse, unbeliever. For an unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? 
Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all of the churches. Right? You'll notice, actually, one of the most striking things that maybe just kind of we pass by early on is that the gospel is saving people, right, left and right. There's husbands and wives who are being converted and their spouse is not. The gospel is advancing. It is breaking into families. And what else is happening? The spouse is not forcing the other spouse to become a Christian, right? It's not a militant gospel that says, for example, as the husband of a family, now that I'm a Christian, you better, get, you better convert or you're going to get buried, right? It's not militant in that way, right? It doesn't hold a sword and say, you've got to become a Christian, right? It is a gospel of peace that says, I've come to Christ. God has made peace with me in Christ. I've come to Christ. Wife, I would love for you to come to Christ too, but let's work this out so that we can have a faithful marriage moving forward. It's actually a way in which they could have been, could have been confused to say, well, I'm a Christian now, and I'm married to a non-believer, should I cut this out and divorce them because really God loves Christian marriages more? It's like, no, God loves marriage, and he loves Christians and non-Christians in marriages. And if you become a, Christ, become a Christian and your spouse doesn't, God still loves you and is going to use you, right? That's all this verses, these verses go on to say, right? Talking about um, people being made holy, right? And your kids being made holy because of one spouse is a Christian and the other one not. All of that stuff. What that is envisioning is just that the realm of grace has now broken into a family, into a marriage, and now touches up, butts up against this other person that you are committed to, right? It is the realm of grace that has touched and set them apart so that, right, people who don't know Jesus or are exploring Jesus, uh, they are unless they are married to somebody or they have a parent or a spouse that is a Christian, it is often very hard to connect with people who are trying to, 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 to discover Jesus. But if your spouse is a Christian and you're not, grace is in your face every day, isn't it? The gospel is lived out in your life every day because that person is committed to you and giving Jesus to you in a way that you would not otherwise have had. But you can imagine as a story, right? Do you feel the confusion that, that God is speaking to here? What do I do? I'm married to somebody. I don't know. They don't know Jesus. I know Jesus. I'm trying to lead my marriage and my family to follow Jesus, but they don't have those values, and they might actually think that X and X and X and X and X is okay, which is against God's design. What do I do? God speaks into it, and he says, I'm going to envision you for this confusing situation. And what does he do? Right? Verse 16, for how do you know, wife? whether you will save your husband, or how do you know husband, whether you will save your wife. The mission of the gospel to redeem souls, to redeem men and women, to know Jesus and follow him is the primary purpose of marriage and singleness. That's what Paul is laying out here. And he is now calling them to remember, right, your spouse doesn't believe? Stick with it. They might come to Christ. How many stories have we had of this in our lives? How many people have we seen married, became a Christian when I was 20, and my spouse didn't for 30 years, trying to be faithful, loved them. It took 30 years for, fam- for spouses to turn to Jesus, right? This is a long-term plan. This isn't something where it's like pray a prayer and get it done. What are the confusing areas? What are the confusing places in your life where you're just kind of like, God, I do not know what to do, and I know you. I know there are confusing situations where we will sit down and talk through what's going on in your life, and we will get to the point of saying, I do not know, right? 
I'm a pastor, right? Somehow I'm supposed to have like this magical ability to know everything and give everybody like life guidance and advice. Often, 95% of the time, I mean, unless it's like an obvious like Ten Commandments type thing, like um, you should stop stealing, you know, <laughs> right? Or like, you know, stop coveting that person's, you know, BMW or whatever, you know, those sort of things. The other 95% of my life is just kind of like, I don't know. But let's pray and find God's grace and vision for how he's going to break into this area of your life. Right? That, that's what Paul is doing. As a pastor, he's looking at these people. He's looking at us, and he's saying, there are confusing situations in our lives. But how does he guide us and end us? Right? Verse 17, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Don't eject. <laughs> he's saying, is it, there isn't like you have to get to someplace else in your life for God to start to use you right? But he has verse 15. God has called you to peace. Can we throw that last slide up there, the verse 15? I just want to, I want you to see these together. God has called you to what? Peace. He has called you to see that your life has been invaded by the God of peace so that you can use that area of your life to live out the mission of the gospel, right? So back, back to, back to the Sermon on the Mount, What does Jesus say? Verse 9 of chapter 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, which means blessed are those who live like a God who made peace with his enemies because they will inherit God. That's the picture that Jesus is holding out in the Sermon on the Mount, and that's then what I think this other little spring is coming up to the Sermon on the Mount in 1 Corinthians 7. That's what Paul was calling us to. Don't eject where God has put you, where God finds you, where Jesus has set you, because he loves that part of you. And he is using the gospel. He is changing you by Jesus. He is valuing you, though you feel marginalized. He is giving you strength, though you feel weak in that place. He is giving you vision, though you feel confused in that place. So that you can be somebody like God, right where you're at, who loves peace. So maybe that means you don't get your way all the time in the marriage that frustrates you. Maybe that means submitting to just a simple, regular recovery plan and not getting to the 20-year mark today. Maybe that means continuing to love your coworkers that drive you absolutely batty because God has called you to be somebody who has peace in your life and is envisioned for the mission of God where you're at. Maybe that means that the neighbors that you would rather quite literally move like to the other side of the world to get away from are actually the very people that God wants to use you to be somebody of peace, to show them somebody that forgives, is patient, is kind, is loving to that person. God is not annoyed with where you're at. Whatever it is, single, married, he's not frustrated by it. He actually loves it. And he has come in and saved you in Jesus to use that story to make Jesus look great. So, when we hold out this point, striving for gospel peace wherever Jesus finds you, do you know what that means? Jesus is right there beside you. He's right there with you. He's looking forward to using you in his mission to make his name look great. So, let's pray, okay? Jesus, I am so struck by this picture of grace our, this room is filled with people of all different types of backgrounds. God, 
what would otherwise be confusing is beautiful to you. You love this room. And I pray that we would find peace in you for wherever you found us to make Jesus look great because he's worthy of it, because he deserves it. And we want that, God. Use us, I pray, to make his name look great wherever we're at. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.